Welcome and thanks for joining us today on the Abundance Podcast. We'll go ahead and get started in prayer. Well, good afternoon, Holy Spirit. Thank you, Lord, for today. Thank you for this time to come together, and we just thank you that uh, your name will be exalted, and uh, we just come with an open mind, and we thank you, Lord, that your word shows us who you are, and we just want to know you better. Thank you, Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen. Well, this is part four of the series entitled Scriptures Supporting God's Sovereignty. So just like the title says, in this series we've been looking at the scriptures used to support the sovereignty of God. And just to be clear, yes, I absolutely believe that God is sovereign. You know, I believe he's above all, he's supreme, he's independent, he's first in rank, he knows the end from the beginning. And if you've listened to any of these previous episodes, you're saying, why do you keep saying that? And the reason I keep saying that is because who knows, this may be the first time that someone listens to this. And the last thing I want them to think is that I don't believe that God is sovereign. Because yes, I absolutely do. But on the other side of that, what I don't believe the Bible supports, that a large portion of the church as a whole has adopted towards God's sovereignty, is the idea that God can do whatever he wants, whenever he wants, that God sovereignly controls everything that happens in this life, good or bad, that all things happen for a reason, that God allows bad things to happen to us so he can you know, teach us a lesson or something like that, that sickness and disease is actually a blessing from God and that God has zero limitations. You know, those things I absolutely do not agree with and I don't believe the Bible does either. But that's what's been taught. And so as a result, when sickness or something comes along, we've been told, oh, it's from God, you know. And so, and I just want to add, if that were the case... You know, why would you take a Tylenol? You know, why would you ever go to the doctor to get cancer treated or, or you know, if something tragic happened, uh, like a car accident or something like that, and, and I'm not trying to be gross here, but if someone were bleeding out, why would you ever try to stop the blood from, you know, from coming out? Because you know what? If God wanted it that way, we should just glory in it and be excited for it. You know, that that makes no sense. Okay, that just gives a terrible representation of God the Father. So in this series, I've been looking up a whole bunch of scriptures used to support this topic towards the sovereignty of God. And what I've simply been wanting to do is to just go to the Word, see what they say. So I've looked up online scriptures that have been used to support the sovereignty of God. I haven't been focused on what a particular person says about that scripture, but I've just gone to the Word. I've looked at it. I read before it to try and get the context of what the verse is. So leading up to it, I can see kind of what they were talking about. I don't just want to pluck a scripture out and make it say what I want it to say. And then I don't just stop there. I continue on after to try and, again, get the context of what's being said. So again, I'm trying to look up a whole bunch of scriptures that cover this topic. And that's why this has turned into a five or a six part series. And with doing that, two things are going to happen. One, I'll find out what I believe to be true is supported in the word, or I'll find out that what I believe to be true is not true and that it's not supported by the word. And if what I believe is supported in the word, well, then that's good. It'll help strengthen why I believe that. But at the same time, it's it's not about what we think the word says or what our grandparents say the word says or our pastor says what the word says. It's about what the word says, okay? That's the main thing is just better understanding God. And again, it's not about knowing stuff. It's about better understanding Jesus, about knowing him. Because this is what it comes down to when we think that all things happen for a reason, that he's the reason why this happened or that happened, why people are raped, why people are murdered. And we may not necessarily think that God wants that to happen, but he allows it. You know, if those are the things that we believe, man, it's going to give a very terrible representation of who God the Father is, because he, he is love, he is hope, he is mercy, he is grace. He doesn't just encompass those things, if that's the right word, he is those things. So in the previous three parts of this series, we've covered a decent amount of scriptures, but at the same time, there's been a lot of times where we you know, kind of dove into some of them at length, and, and so we haven't covered as many as I really wanted to. So in this episode, I really want to try and cover as many scriptures as we can without turning this into a five-hour episode. So let's go ahead and get started. Psalm 147.5. It says, Great is our Lord and mighty in power. His understanding is infinite. 
So there's absolutely nothing wrong with this verse. Yes, God is great and mighty in power. Yes, his understanding is infinite. Now, that doesn't mean his will always comes to pass. It just means we serve an awesome, powerful, all-knowing God. And yes, his understanding is infinite. Psalm 90, verse 2. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, you were God. Yes, this is an awesome verse. Yes, God was before the earth was formed. Absolutely. Revelations 1.8, and we've used this scripture in uh, other episodes, but it says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, says the Lord, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. So absolutely, both of these verses are absolutely true. But neither means that everything that happens is God's will or that all things happen for a reason. It simply describes God's sovereignty, that he's first in rank, he's supreme, he's above all, and he's all-knowing. So if we look at these verses that way, then yes, God is sovereign. Next, we'll look at Psalm 135.5. For I know that the Lord is great, and our Lord is above all gods. Absolutely true. <laughs> I never realized how much I say the word absolutely until I started doing this podcast. But anyways, our God is above all gods. And, and I'm talking about li- lowercase g, little g gods. Nothing or no one else can or will ever be on the same level as God Almighty. But even though our God is great and above all gods, that's not saying that everything who wants to happen happens. If God sovereignly made everything that happens happen, he would have sovereignly stopped people from worshiping false gods and, and little g-gods. You know, he, he, he wouldn't allow that to happen if, if only what he wanted to happen happens. God is totally against sin. So let me clarify, he hates sin and worshiping a false God is no doubt sin. God is not quote unquote sovereignly allowing it to happen either. God by his own choice set up the system where we have free will. And we've discussed that in previous episodes. Isaiah 43, 13, indeed before the day was, I am he and there is no one who can deliver out of my hands. I work and who will reverse it? So let's first get some context with what's been said leading up to this verse. So the end of chapter 42 is where Isaiah is telling about God's judgment because the people had forsaken him. But in chapter 43, he's prophesying about the redemption Jesus would bring. So in verses 10 through 12, it says, You are my witnesses, says the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me, there was no God formed. Okay, so that's a key. Before me, there was no God formed, nor shall there be after me. I, even I, am the Lord, and besides me, there is no Savior. I have declared and saved. I have proclaimed. Here's another key. And there was no foreign God among you. Therefore, you are my witnesses, says the Lord, that I am God. So we see that God is establishing that he, and only he, is God. There wasn't any God before him. There won't be any gods after him, lowercase g. And they are his witnesses because they know he is God Almighty. And during the time he rescued and saved them, there was no other little g gods among them for them to get confused and think it was because of that little g God. They knew that it was God Almighty that was rescuing and saving them. Then comes verse 13 where it says, Indeed, before the day was, I am he, and there is no one who can deliver out of my hand I work and who will reverse it. So in verse 13, he's basically saying that idols are nothing. I'm God and no idol can deliver or reverse anything I do or say. I'm the true God, not an idol. (laughs) Okay. Now I'm sure that there could be more that could be said about this verse, but in relation to the extreme sovereignty of God, to pluck it out and say that God's will always come to pass because right here in this verse, it says, who can deliver out of my hand? No one can reverse anything I, God, want to happen. Now, that's just inconsistent with so many of the verses we've gone over in this series. Psalm 103.19. This is the next one. The Lord has established his throne in heaven and his kingdom rules over all. So this verse in relation to the extreme sovereignty of God, and when I say the extreme sovereignty of God, I'm, I'm talking about that second list of what the church has adopted as what sovereign means. I'm not talking about the dictionary definition of sovereign that God is 
above all. He's first in rank. He's supreme. He knows the end from the beginning. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about these other lists of things that the church world has said sovereign means in relation to God. So this verse in relation to the extreme sovereignty of God can be used to try and say that because the Lord has established his throne overall, everything he wants to happen happens or you know something along those lines. But let's take a look at a couple of verses leading up to it. Psalm 103 verses 17 through 19 says, But the mercy of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him and his righteousness to children's children. Verse 18, To such as, here it is, keep his covenant and to those who remember his commandments to do them. So for where it says, To such as keep his covenant and who remember his commandments to do them, what do these two phrases imply? That someone has a choice, <laughs> you know? If we were going to keep something or we were going to do something, that would mean that we have a choice. You know, that's not someone forcing us to do it. Each individual decides for themselves whether they'll keep his covenant or do his commandments. But for us in the new covenant, keep in mind, we're reading in Psalms. This was written before Jesus died and overcame death. So for us today, we live under a better covenant established on better promises. But all we're trying to point out is that from these verses, we see that there's a choice to be made for every individual. God is not sovereignly making us do whatever he wants us to do like a puppet. You know, he gave us free will. After that, then verse 19 says, The Lord has established his throne in heaven and his kingdom rules over all. So again, the dictionary definition of the word sovereign lines right up with what this verse is saying. God is above all. He has established his throne in heaven and his kingdom does rule over all. Absolutely. But making a paragraph out of a sentence would be trying to take that and say that everything God wants to happen happens. I believe another application that could be taken from this verse is that no matter what God, you know, little g God, not God Almighty, but little g God is or has been out there, there isn't a single one of them that are above God Almighty. So I just want to point out all roads don't lead to heaven. You know, this idea of coexisting or universalism, that doctrine is of the devil. It's deception. John 14, 6 says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. There are no exceptions. Zero. None. I want to say this with grace and mercy, but if you believe in Allah from the Muslim religion or Brahman, I think that's how you pronounce it, Brahman, the Hindu religion, or your God is something carved from a rock or from a tree. If you believe those religions or you've made those your religion and it's not through Jesus, again, this is with grace and mercy. This is not meant to be harsh with you, but you've been deceived. There is no other God except God Almighty, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So our next verse we'll look at is Isaiah 55, 11. So shall my word be that goes forth from my mouth. It shall not return to me void but it shall accomplish what I please and it shall prosper and the things for which I sent it. So this verse is absolutely true. But in relation to the sovereignty of God, this verse has been used to try and say that there's absolutely nothing that happens in the universe that is outside of God's influence and authority. Okay, if God spoke it, it happens. And yes, what God speaks does happen. But here's the thing. Like we already discussed in part one of this series, God is so above all and all-powerful that he made the decision to set up the system that gave mankind authority and for how it applies today, more specifically for the believers that make up the body of Christ. God set it up that way. So he spoke that into existence, yes, and it doesn't return back void. And God is not a man that he should lie. So what he says goes forth. He set up a system to where we're not robots, but instead... Every individual is responsible for the decisions he or she makes. And here's a little side note with that. He didn't ask you or my opinion. He chose to set it up that way. No one affected him, you know, in that decision. That's what he wanted. That was his choice. So he spoke those words and they will not return back void. He set up the system in place for us to have authority and that's how he wanted it. Proverbs 16, 33. This is the next one. The lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. So if you're not familiar with lots being cast, it's, it's 
it's kind of like throwing dice, you know, whatever happens, whatever comes up. If God, if you throw the, the dice and, you know, seven comes up, well, God made it that way. God wanted that to happen. That's, you know, but here we see an example that's been used to say that God sovereignly controls everything. And every outcome is because that's how God wanted it to be. So back in those days, in Bible days, the custom was to roll dice or whatever it looked like. I, I guess I don't actually know exactly what casting lots looked like back in those days to determine what God's will was. But today, we have the Holy Spirit inside of us. He is our comforter, our guide, and our coach. We no longer need to try and use this type of system on this side of the cross to determine God's will. We only need to be sensitive to the Spirit of God living on the inside of us. But again, I want to point out, this casting lots back in Bible times, I'm not saying it was wrong. You see it used quite a bit. So please don't interpret what I'm saying is that what they did was wrong. That's not what I'm saying. But I'm just saying now we have the Holy Spirit. So here's something I want to throw at you. And you can chalk this up to just Jasonology. And if you don't know, my name is Jason. So when I say Jasonology, I'm talking um, you know, about my thoughts and my interpretation of what this could mean. I'm not saying that I 100% believe this to be true, but I think it's something kind of neat to think about as we're talking about the sovereignty of God and whether or not his will always comes to pass. So what I want to bring up is, you know, what about the time when casting lots was used in the book of Acts to select Matthias, I'm not really sure how you pronounce that, Matthias, to replace Judas as the 12th disciple. So that was after the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. It was in the book of Acts. So I'm going to give kind of a, a little overview of what's been happening and where this comes into play. So starting in Acts 1.15, Peter stands up and begins to explain how the scriptures have been fulfilled concerning Judas. In Acts 1.20, it says that that verse ends by saying, let another take his office. So basically someone needs to fill Judas's spot. And that was a prophecy from Psalm 109.8 that Peter just quoted. Again, in case you don't know, Judas was the disciple that betrayed Jesus. He hung himself and died. So now someone needed to fill a spot. So in Acts 1, 21 through 26, it says, Therefore, of these men who have accompanied us all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John to that day when he was taken up from us, one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. And they proposed two. Joseph called Barsabas, or something like that, who was surnamed Justice, and Matthias. And here's the key I want to point out. And they prayed and said, okay, You, O Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which of these two you have chose to take this part in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas by transgression fell that he might go to his own place. And then verse 26 says, And they cast lots, and the lot fell to Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles. Again, this is just something to think about, and you can just chalk this one up to Jasonology. First, I'd like to point out that this account is in the book of Acts, so it's after the resurrection of Jesus, like I had previously said. It's not pre-cross during the Old Covenant. So why am I saying that? Because pre-cross, casting lots was a common custom. So next, we see that the Bible doesn't say that they sought after God or anything like that to ask him, what way they should go about selecting someone to fill Judas' spot in order to fulfill that prophecy that David spoke. I mean, should they put an ad in the local paper saying, you know, disciple wanted? Should they ask around for the most qualified Pharisee of that day? You know, I'm just trying to get us to think a little bit about it. What would you do to fill that spot? So let's see what they did. It says that they said, and this, again, this is me paraphrasing and putting it in a nutshell, Let's fill Judas' spot and let's fill it with someone who's been with us the whole time and let's choose between these two men. Then it says in verse 24 through 25 that they prayed to God saying, You, O Lord, you know the hearts of all. Show which one of these two you have chose. So this is where the Jasonology comes in. Now, I'm not saying what they did was wrong, that they should have done it differently or anything like that. But I also, with the understanding I currently have, can't say I believe they did everything right necessarily either. First, if you look at their prayer, they didn't ask God to show them who to select. They basically said, 
hey, God, choose from these two people. So what I'm trying to point out is the Bible doesn't record that these were who God told them to choose from. It just said, hey, God, here's two. Choose from these two. And to kind of expand on that, if either of these two were who God wanted, I personally don't believe he would have said, well, it's between these two. You know, I, I don't believe God was using this as an opportunity to test him. You know, I believe God would have just showed them somehow, it's this one. He's the one I want. Again, Jasonology. This makes me think of how God selected David instead of his brothers. And there's a bunch of other examples in the Bible where God specifically chose someone. He didn't say, well, it's between these two or three or four. Again, I'm not saying what they did was wrong. I'm just saying it's something to consider as we're discussing the will of God. So after they, you know, the Peter and the disciples, chose these two people, they then said, you know the hearts of men, so pick which one you want, God. What I want to point out is that they didn't give God much of a choice. Again, I know I'm kind of saying this over and over, but I'm not saying they absolutely did things wrong. We're just looking at what the Word says and using our brains to think a little. You know, it, it's okay to allow our brains to think a little when we read the Word of God. <laughs> There's nothing wrong with that. God's not against that. Actually, the one way that we'll get most of our revelation you know, once we get, you know, in the last episode, I talked about how we get the word in us. But after that, a lot of times where we can get our revelation doesn't have to be where we have the Bible right in front of us. Because, you know, the word is in our spirit, man, and we're trying to get it up to our brain. So that phrase of saying, get the word in us, eh, I mean, it's not 100% true, but it, but it is. Um, we're trying to get our, our brains to focus on it. So when we don't have the Bible right in front of us and we can be doing other things, we can be thinking about the Word. And that's what meditation is. It's just rolling the thoughts over and over in our minds. And so that's actually where, you know, yes, we get revelation through reading the Bible. Absolutely. Where it's in front of us, we read a verse and something ministers to us and that's the Lord speaking to us. Absolutely. But what I'm trying to point out is even if we don't have the Bible in front of us, when we're just going about our daily business, and we're, th we're being God-focused, we're thinking about God, we're thinking about the scriptures that are inside of us because we've read them, God can use that time and he can minister thoughts to us and we can really expand on and our wisdom and our understanding of the word. So whether Peter and the disciples went through this process correctly or not, I just want to point out it's not a deal breaker, okay? It's just fun to read and allow the Holy Spirit to minister to you as you grow. And maybe I'll receive revelation on this a month from now or a year from now, or at least you know, when I see Jesus face to face, I'll know all things just as I am known. But for now, it's just a thought. So again, they didn't give God much of a choice. And I kind of want to just throw an example out there to kind of help you see what I'm saying. It's kind of like us working for an employer and then a promotion comes up at two different locations from where we're currently at. And we pray to God, should I move to Texas or Colorado to take this promotion? Oh God, tell me which one you want me to take. So what I'm trying to point out is our prayer wasn't, hey God, are either of these two jobs the plan that you have for me? Or am I supposed to stay put with where I'm at? Am I supposed to pursue these or not? You know, that, that wasn't our prayer. Our prayer was, hey God, which one should I move to Texas or Colorado? And to use the scripture of Isaiah 55, 8 through 9, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, says the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Again, we've talked about that scripture, and it's not saying that everything that happens in this world is because of God, and that's the way that he wanted it. It's just saying that God knows the end from the beginning. He knows what's best for us. So God, in his all-knowing wisdom, knows back to our example, that in six months, both of those places in Texas and in Colorado will have layoffs and that would include the job that you're thinking about taking. He knows that. He knows the end from the beginning. So God, in his infinite wisdom, wants you to stay put, not only so that you can continue to have your job, but also because he specifically has a purpose for you right where you're at. Because little do you know that the guy working next to you on the assembly line has been crying out to God for weeks. And he notices something different about you, but he doesn't know quite what it is. And a month from now, if you were to not take that job and you were to stay put, and God's foreknowledge, he knows 
that that guy is going to come to you and you're going to have an opportunity to share with them why you are the way that you are. And in turn, that guy is going to go home and lead his wife to Christ. And not only that, he's going to go home and lead his 10-year-old boy to Christ. And that little boy, again, we're talking about the foreknowledge of God. God knows the end from the beginning. And again, this is just an example, so stay with me here. God knows that not only will that man who works next to you lead his wife to Christ, but their 10-year-old little boy, but that little boy will ultimately grow up and lead many to Christ. (laughs) But because you didn't pray for God to reveal to you what he wanted you to do from the beginning, you told God what his two options were for your life. So because we didn't give God much of a choice, and we just said, well, which one should I take, God? And we didn't allow him to direct us to say, hey, I want you to stay put. Maybe God does say, okay, well, you're only giving me two options. And he chooses the best of the two options. And six months down the line, you're out of a job because they have layoffs. And as terrible as that is that, you know, in six months time, you moved your family, you uprooted your family, you moved to another city, another state, you started a job. Now in six months, you're out of a job. You know, as bad as that is, God wasn't able to use you to lead that coworker to Jesus and have that domino effect, uh, if you will, to lead that family to Jesus. Again, God doesn't override our ability to choose and ultimately his will doesn't always come to pass. So go back and listen to part four of the Sovereignty of God series, not this series, but another series entitled The Sovereignty of God, where we saw through real life Bible stories that God's will doesn't always come to pass. So back to the disciples. They simply said, show us which one of these two you have chosen, God. And then it says that they cast lots and the lot fell to Matthias. So again, I'm not concluding that the disciples were wrong, but there's a couple other things to consider. First, Matthias is never mentioned again in the Bible. Okay, this is the only time where he's mentioned. And, you know, I don't know, just like how the Apostle John was labeled the one that Jesus loved, or he said, you know, I'm the one that Jesus loved and that sort of thing. And and it's not specifically saying this is John, but he has that kind of nickname. You know, I don't know. Maybe Matthias has a, a nickname or he's referenced somehow. I don't know. But his name, Matthias, is never comes up again in the Bible. So does that mean Matthias really wasn't who God wanted, but instead was the better of the two options? You know, I, I don't know. You know, maybe, maybe not. Maybe they did exactly what God wanted them to do. I I don't know. And why am I saying this? Because on this side of the cross, we have the Holy Spirit. So next, something I want to look at is just because what they did was recorded in the Bible, that doesn't mean it was God's will. Okay, and an example of this is in Galatians 2, 11 through 21, and we won't read it, but it's where Paul rebukes Peter openly for not sitting with the Gentiles when the others came around. So obviously we see that Peter was wrong with his actions to the point where Paul felt he had to correct him. And all of that was recorded in the Bible. So I'm saying that because what Peter did was something he shouldn't have done and it wasn't God's will and yet it was recorded in the Bible. All that to say, Matthias may or may not have been who God wanted to fill Judas' spot. And I don't necessarily believe casting lots is or was God's will for us believers in the New Covenant. Casting lots was kind of like the default setting of that culture, and the disciples simply reverted back to the pre-cross way of doing things. Because make no mistake about it, casting lots was used a bunch in the Old Testament, like I've already said, and it was good for that time and that day when they did it. And on a side note, God's not in support of a casino or a lotto ticket type system. He's not mad at you if you choose to participate and go to like a casino or to buy lotto tickets. Don't misinterpret. Please don't misinterpret what I'm saying. God's not mad at you. But all I'm trying to say is that in God's system, everybody wins. Christ freely gave to us all. We live under an open heaven. So casting lots is not God's will for us today. We've been given the Holy Spirit to guide and direct us. Next scripture we'll look at is 1 Samuel 2, 6-8. through 8. The Lord kills and makes alive. <laughs> yeah. The Lord kills and makes alive. He brings down to the grave and brings up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and lifts up. 
He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the beggar from the ash heap to set them among princes and make them inherit the throne of glory. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's and he has set the world upon them. So the end of that verse goes along with how God holds the whole world in his hands. You know, the NIV says, for the foundations of the earth are the Lord's, on them he has set the world. And that is absolutely true. God, Again, God is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. God created the heavens and the earth in the beginning. Absolutely true. But we're going to really focus on verse 6. And verse 6 says, It's the Lord who kills and makes alive. God is the one who brings down to the grave and brings up. And again, I wasn't giggling, you know, when I first started reading that. I wasn't giggling at that because, you know, that's a good thing or something. I just... It, it's just one of those scriptures that I believe has been pulled and, and, and plucked out and made to say what someone wanted it to say to line up with this extreme sovereignty of God. And I just don't believe that to be true. And let me show you why. Yes, God has and one day again will do all those things. Okay, God will kill and make alive. God is the one who brings down the grave. Yes, he will do those things again one day. But I'd like to point out that this is Samuel's mom, Hannah, praying. Okay, Samuel in the Old Testament. This is his mom who's saying these words. And she was under a different covenant that you and I are under today. We live in the age of grace where God's wrath is not being poured out. And why is that? Because we have a covenant with God. Believers today, where the Holy Spirit indwells in us, we have a covenant with God that, yes, there was a covenant in the Old Testament, but we have something different. We have the Holy Spirit inside of us. All of sin, past, present, and future, was placed on Jesus at the cross. And this dispensation, we're delivered from the curse of the law. And as I've already mentioned, go and read Deuteronomy 28 and actually see what God lists as curses. And in that Deuteronomy 28, he he lists blessings and he lists curses. And and I did an episode on that in that series called The the, uh, Sovereignty of God. This is kind of a comical statement once you, you know, have gained the understanding about this. And I don't mean this to be mean, but only religious folks would take what God lists as curses and try to defend them as being blessings from God. But, you know, we see in the word that it says that in the last days, people will call what is evil good and what is good evil. And man, do we see that today. (laughs) And this wasn't in my notes, but I don't know how I could not mention it. Today's day and age where people are saying, where people are trying to change their genders and saying that they're not this and that there's all these, not just two genders, there's all sorts of them and stuff like that. That is just crazy. And I'm not fussing with you. You know, Jesus loves you. I love you. But if you're a believer, and I'm not saying that you're not a believer, I'm saying if you've trusted in Jesus and you have your fire insurance and you believe that it's okay for someone to... Now, I'm not saying that we've got to... Let me finish my statement first before I say that. If you're saying that it's okay if they're a man and they are claiming that they want to be a woman, and, you know, I'm not saying that we don't love those people. I'm not saying that that our actions and our love towards them can't turn them back to choosing what God's ultimate plan was for them. Okay, I'm not saying that at all. I'm not wording that the best. And don't get me wrong. There is a time for truth. You know, God was full of truth and grace, okay? Truth is telling someone what they don't want to hear, not forcing it down their throats, but we being willing to tell them the truth in love and in grace and in mercy. You know, if someone were about to drive off a cliff and you were too worried about what they were going to think of you and you didn't tell them that a cliff was coming up, they'd drive off that cliff. But if you cared more for them than what they might think of you or say to you, and you told them that the cliff was coming up and they stopped and didn't run over the cliff, that's love, okay? But again, love does not mean that we just bum rush people. Um, You know, I'm not trying to tell you that you don't do things that the Holy Spirit tells you to do. But I believe a lot of the things that we see, a lot of times you'll see people videotaping themselves, how they go on to subway trains and they say, oh, God loves you. And, And yes, he does. But... I know I'm kind of getting off into a little rabbit trail, but you know what? We just got to be cautious that we're doing things with the love of God because, like I've said, the scripture that's really been ministering to me is that knowledge puffs up, but love edifies. We can know this stuff, and we can know it's true, and it is true because it is the Word of God, but we can have that knowledge and not do it in grace and mercy, not share that information with someone with grace and mercy. 
and, and it'd be totally wrong. And, and, and we'd be so wrong, or excuse me, so we can be so right that we're wrong. But anyways, back to this idea of genders and that sort of thing. We're living in a day and age where people are calling evil good and good evil. If you believe that an individual is not in error when they decide to try to surgically make themselves a man or surgically make themselves a woman, again, God loves them. That's not the issue. But if we agree with this idea that like God made a mistake when he made them, it's a just complete slap in the face to God Almighty. God knew exactly what he was doing. Okay, God made them that way. And it's because he has a plan and a purpose for them. But anyways, we could talk a lot more about that, but we're going to keep going. So back to verse 6. But with that line of thinking, it brings up that the Lord kills and makes alive. He brings down to the grave and brings up. There's a relatively common belief that says it's God that decides when it's time for us to die. Like he's up in heaven with a date circled on a calendar. And when our day comes, he pushes a button and we just either stop breathing or fall over. Or he has it so we instantly have a heart attack and die or something along those lines. Basically implying that it's all up to God. Because it's not like someone's death could ever be due to a terrible diet or lack of physical fitness. It has to be because it was all up to God. You know, no, absolutely not. Or even better yet, or worse depending on how you look at it, it has to be God's will for planes to crash or for there to be freak accidents like car crashes or just tragic things in general. All of that has to be because God had it on his calendar and it was just our time to go and so he pushed the button and poof, (laughs) you know. Now, I'm purposely going overboard for the sake of the discussion. And I just want to say, for any of you that have lost a loved one to any of these types of circumstances I just mentioned, I in no way am trying to be insensitive to that situation. That is not my heart at all. The purpose of bringing up some of the situations is to try and go after that line of thinking. Okay, If I just make a general statement, you might not really get what I'm trying to say. Because how can we truly love God or trust Him when we think He's the one controlling the timing on when we or our loved ones die, especially when it's in horrific fashion? But what about Psalm 139 verse 16 where it says, Your eyes saw my substance being yet unformed. And in your book, they all were written, the days fashioned for me, when as yet there were none of them. So the New International Version says, Your eyes saw my unformed body, all the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. But again, what we're establishing as we talk about the extreme sovereignty of God is that yes, God knows the end from the beginning, and he has a plan for our life. But he doesn't, quote unquote, sovereignly enforce that plan to come to pass. It wasn't God's sovereign plan for Hitler to do the things that he did. It's not God's sovereign plan for the rapists and the murderers to do what they've done. It's simply saying that before we were ever born, God created us with a plan in mind. And our best choice, keyword choice, is to follow his plan for us. Genesis 6.3 And the Lord said, My spirit shall not strive with man forever, and he is indeed flesh. Yet his days shall be 120 years. So here God is saying that man will live for 120 years. And what I'd like to point out is that God isn't saying here that 120 years is the maximum. It's actually the minimum of years given to mankind. But how can that be true? You might be thinking, you know, it's pretty rare today to even hear of someone making it past 100, let alone 120. What we see in the Bible is that even after God says this, there are all sorts of people living well after 120. A guy named Salah, or something like that, Selah, Salah, lives 430 years, and you find that in Genesis 11, 14 through 15. A guy named Eber, well, I, I guess I don't know if it's a guy or a girl, but I, I think it's a guy. Eber lives 464 years, and that's in Genesis uh, 11, verses 16 through 17. Basically, you'll see several from Genesis 11, which is clearly after God had spoke this in Genesis 6, 3. Abraham lived to be 175. And before God spoke this in Genesis 6.3, Methuselah in Genesis 5.27 actually lived to be 969 years old. But what can we take away from this? It's that overall, I believe man's sin is decreasing his lifespan. So on that note, if you've heard it said 
that people today are living longer than what they ever have, well, if we believe the word to be true, the Bible, we can clearly see that that's not true. Now let's take a look at what Moses writes in Psalm 90. And it kind of goes with this 120 years. It's, you know, it's later on. But Psalm 90 verse 10 says, The days of our lives are 70 years, and if by reason of strength they are 80 years, yet their boast is only labor and sorrow, for it is soon cut off and we fly away. So again, the reason we're bringing this up is because we're establishing, does God have a date circled on a calendar where when that day comes, poof, we're dead? You know, is that the way that he set it up? So in this scripture, in, in Psalms 90 verse 10, the 70 years mentioned here are not a maximum, they're a minimum. Then it goes on to say that the number can even be extended to 80 years. So how is that? It says in this verse, by reason of strength. So by reason of strength, I believe is talking about our fitness level. You know, the way we eat, the way we take care of our bodies from things like smoking or drugs, etc. You know, just how we take care of our bodies. All of those things can play a role in our length of days. Now, what I need to say here, just to fill this in, is that every day we've been given is because of the grace of God. Okay, we don't deserve any of it. It's, it's all by the grace of God. Just because someone eats right and exercises seven days a week does not guarantee they live to be 80 years old. And here's some scriptures. Proverbs 14.30 A sound heart is life to the body, but envy is rottenness to the bones. Psalm 34 verse 12 through 14, and we're going to use this verse again later on, but who is the man who desires life and loves many days, that he may see good? Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Depart from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. Nehemiah 8 verse 10 in the latter part of that verse B says, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So there's benefits to living for God. And in this case, it's length of days. But I just want to point out, again, everything is by the grace of God. We don't deserve any length of days. But God is a merciful God and he gives it to us. So someone could do everything right health-wise, but because they don't believe in Jesus, they could be envious or anxious or speak gossip and evil things all the time and cut down their length of days. You know, And that's not just for unbelievers, that's also for believers too. But I'm simply pointing out that what we do with our bodies can play a part. And Moses who wrote this, ended up living to be 120 years old. Deuteronomy 34.7 says, Moses was 120 years old when he died. His eyes were not dim, nor his natural vigor diminished. So basically this is saying Moses was in great physical condition. And actually when he died, the word talks about how he climbed a mountain before he died. And how many 120-year-olds do you even know who can climb a set of stairs, let alone a mountain? Or better yet, how many 120-year-olds do you know? But there's good news for us. As I already mentioned in this episode, you and I live under a better covenant, established on better promises. I don't believe there's any reason why we couldn't outlive Moses at 120, but not only that, have great health until we're ushered into God's presence. Here's another thing. I don't believe God is the one responsible for killing people. He simply receives us unto himself. Ecclesiastes 12.7 says, Then the dust will return to the earth as it was, and the spirit will return to God who gave it. So it'll return to God, our spirit. 2 Corinthians 5.8 says, We are confident, yes, well pleased rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. So if we're absent from this body, we're present with the Lord. And yes, our body will cease, but we continue on. So yes, our body, quote unquote, dies, but our spirit steps out of this body and goes right into the presence of the Lord. So we just continue on. And it's much better there than it is here. <laughs> Luke 23, 46. And when Jesus had cried out with a loud voice, he said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Having said this, he breathed his last. Luke 16, 22 through 31. And we're not going to read all those, but it says here, and this is where Jesus is speaking. So it was that the beggar died, and was carried by the angels to Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried. And I got something else I want to throw in there. You know, in relation to when babies die and that sort of thing, you know, the word says that we were born with a sin nature. And so um, my wife actually has a friend of hers that is struggling with this idea of because she knows 
the word and she knows that we're born with a sin nature, she's having a hard time with understanding whether or not her child that she lost is in the presence of God. And there's all sorts of stuff there with the age of accountability and how man's sin is not being imputed to them until the law and and you know your age of accountability and again I don't I don't know how don't quote me on all that stuff. I mean I I know mentally what I'm trying to say and I know that it's true that when a, a child dies that they go to be in the presence of God, but I have a hard time right now with my understanding defending it scripturally and showing you, okay, here's why, here's why. But I know there's the account, the age of accountability and a child's, you know, quote unquote sin or being born into a sin nature isn't being held against them. But right now I don't have the scriptures for that. But here's one I do have. I just found this the other day because I heard somebody else say it and, and, I, and I looked it up. And this is in 2 Samuel 12 verse 23. And this is where David had adultery and took another man's wife. That woman conceived a child. That child was born. Then the prophet Nathan came to David and told him that that child was going to die. David fell to his face, sackcloth and ashes type stuff. You know, I don't know if that was, if he literally did the sackcloth and ashes, but he worshiped God. He prayed to God. He fell on his face. And anyways, the child died. Well, then once the child died, he no longer did that. He just rose and he, and actually, why don't I just read 22, verse 22. It says, and he said, while the child was alive, I fasted and wept for I said, who can tell whether the Lord will be gracious to me that the child may live. And so here's the key verse I'm trying to show. Verse 23, and this is in chapter 12, second Samuel. But now he is dead, talking of the child. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him, but he shall not return to me. So real quick, is it okay to grieve for our child if we've lost a child? Absolutely. Okay. You know, don't misconstrue what this verse is saying. That's not what that's saying. This is just where David stopped grieving. He stopped uh, praying to God about it because the child was dead and he just moved on. And and that sounds like he was heartless. It's really not, um, but we're not getting into that. What I want to point out here is that David says, I shall go to him. Okay. But he shall not return to me. So he's speaking of the child. He knew that that child was in the presence of God. He was in Abraham's bosom. And that's what happened in the Old Testament before Jesus had his death, burial, and resurrection. They came into Abraham's bosom. So David said, I shall go to him because David would go to Abraham's bosom, but she shall not return to me. The child shall not come back from the grave and come back to me. So all I'm trying to point out there is that your child, if you've lost a child and they were not at that age of accountability, it was not being imputed to them, that's the word I was looking for, um, they are in the presence of God. Okay, Again, I know that's not the best explanation of that, but that just came into mind and I just wanted to share that because I just sensed that maybe there's some, some moms out there or some dads out there that have had a child that have died and I just wanted to give that that small explanation. I know that's only one scripture, um, and I can't defend it as well as I would like to, but I just wanted to share that with you so that, you know, when you're reading the word and another scripture comes, okay, you can add to this verse here, and then you have two scriptures, and then you have three scriptures, and then you have four. But yeah, your child is in the presence of God. But again, back to these verses that we were talking about how we're received into the presence of God uh, when we die. I just want to point out, I don't have everything figured out about, you know, this topic. And and I know I'll admit on here that I don't have every topic I don't have any topic in the Bible all figured out, okay? But what I'm just trying to say is like I, I'm not as firm in this as maybe I should be, but there are the scriptures that, you know, state what we're, you know, we're getting at. So all I'm trying to point out is that in Psalms 90 verse 10, it just makes it clear that we have a role to play with how long our life will be here on planet Earth. And I also would like to bring up a verse from the book of Job. The book of Job can be somewhat hard to understand and and it's been misrepresented and, and again back in that sovereignty of god series we took a whole it's either part five or part four we took a whole episode and, and went over the book of job i always had a hard time understanding the book of job but now with the understanding i have it's really not all that complicated it, it, it really isn't the book of job i believe is 42 chapters long and it's not until chapter 42 where god says something that we're going to talk about here that changes the way that you have to read the book of job so when you get to the end of the book of job and you read that if you didn't know that the whole time which 
how many of us read a book and read the end of the book just to to see what the ending is and then go back and read the beginning. You know, that's no fun. Why would why would we do that for a typical book? Um, so you probably didn't do that for the book of Job. But once we have that understanding with what God says at the end of the book of Job, that changes the way that we interpret what the book of Job is saying. So Job 14.5, since his days are determined, you and I, speaking of you and I when it says his, the number of his months is with you, you God. So you God have appointed his limits so that he cannot pass. So when it says limits, what are we talking about? His length of days. It says that God has appointed his length of days so that he cannot pass that. And you know, if you're reading that and we read that scripture, you might say, well, there it is. It says right there that God determined our days and months and has set a limit that we cannot pass. So I understand that that's what it sounds like. But what we have to keep in mind when reading the book of Job as a whole is that we have to be careful with the way we're reading it. And what I mean by that is chapters 3 through 31, and again, there's 42 chapters in the book of Job, so chapters 3 through 31 is a record of the conversation being held between Job and his three friends. And those three friends are Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. And in Job 42, which is at the end of the book of Job, verses 7 through 8, God corrects Job's three friends saying that what they said was incorrect. And then, after God corrected Job's three friends, God says in the tail end of verse 8 that Job spoke correctly. But what Job just got done saying a couple verses prior to that in Job 42.3 is that he uttered what he did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. So yes, God said that Job spoke correctly. But what he spoke correctly was that he didn't know what he was talking about and that he was wrong. So again, chapters 3 through 31 records the conversation that Job and his three friends had that God later said in chapter 42 that was wrong. So chapter 14, where this verse is found, is in the chapters where God corrected them for what they had said. Now, does that mean that we should just throw out chapters 3 through 31 in the book of Job? No. Here's the key. We can benefit from things in these chapters, but we can't always take statements from them literally to interpret the book of Job as a whole, or better yet, the Bible as a whole. We have to be careful if we try to take things out of these chapters to come to a conclusion about God's nature and character. It's important, whatever we take from chapters 3 through 31 has to line up with the new covenant that you and I are under on this side of the cross after Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, or else we'll get a misconception of God's true nature and character and the type of God that he is. But again, back to what Moses wrote about in relation to the 70 or 80 years. There is the potential that bad things happen in our life, you know, where someone may not live to be 70 to 80 years old. You know, there are tragic events. And here's a really important verse to be mindful of as we try to wrap our brains around everything that we just read. John 10.10, 10, the thief, and who is the thief? It is Satan does not come except to steal and to kill and to destroy. And I, and now it's referring to Jesus, because this is actually Jesus talking in John 10.10, I have come that they may have life and that they may have it more abundantly. Okay? So God wants life. Jesus wants life. Okay? Jesus does not want death for us. But yes, in the Old Testament, we saw God's wrath and anger being poured out on man's sin. But now... All of sin has been dealt with by Jesus, and in this dispensation, which is referred to as the age of grace, and there's a couple more names for it, God is not imputing man's sin to them. It is the devil that has come to steal, kill, and that's what we're talking about. You know, Does God have a date circled on a calendar and says, okay, you're going to die on this day? No, he knows the end from the beginning. He knows how it's all going to work out, but God is not the one who does the stealing and the killing and the destroying. But Jesus came to give us life and have it more abundantly. So that's why it's so important we gain the understanding that God's not the one responsible for every circumstance we encounter in this life, but instead God has given us the authority to fight against the schemes of the devil rather than to be passive and to just accept them. So all of this ties into the sovereignty of God and how God has given us a part to play with how long we'll live, meaning we have a choice with whether or not to cooperate with the system he's set in place. And that's not only with what we've discussed concerning Psalm 90, verses 10, where it said, by reason of strength. Let's take a look at another scripture that talks about how our decisions affect our length of days. 
And that's in Ephesians 6, 2-3. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with promise, that it may be well with you and you may live long on the earth. So this is referring to one of the Ten Commandments that was given. And that was in Exodus 20, verse 12. It says, Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long upon the land which the Lord your God is giving you. It's also mentioned in Deuteronomy 5.16, but it also adds, and that it may be well with you. Okay, so not only will you have length of days, but it may be well with you. So what I'd like to point out is that these verses are saying long life is available for each individual. God doesn't sovereignly choose who he wants to have a long life and who he doesn't want to have a long life. You know, that's, that's not his MO. So here's a couple other verses that add to this point. Proverbs 3. 1 through 2. My son, do not forget my law, but let your heart keep my commands. For length of days and long life and peace, they will add to you. Okay, so the key there is length of days and long life and peace. We'll throw that in there. They will add to you. Again, God does not have a date circled on a calendar for your time to be up. And he's just waiting up in heaven to kill you or your loved ones. Okay, that's not God. Deuteronomy 30, 19 through 20. I call heaven and earth as witnesses today against you, that I have set before you life and death, blessing and cursing. Therefore, choose life. You know, God's so cool. He doesn't just give you the options on the test. He gives you the answer. He says to choose life, that both you and your descendants may live, that you may love the Lord your God, that you may obey his voice, and that you may cling to him. For he is your life, and here it is, and the length of your days that you may dwell in the land which the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give them. Psalm 34, 12-14 Who is the man who desires life and loves many days, that he may see good? Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Depart from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. Now let's pair that one up with Proverbs eighteen twenty one that says, Death and life are in the power of the tongue, and those who love it will eat its fruit. So if you speak a bunch of junk out of your mouth, you will get death and cursing. If you speak what God says about your situations and your circumstances, and you follow his ways, like honoring your father and your mother, you'll add length of days. You know, it's a choice. Proverbs 3, 7 through 8. Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and depart from evil. And here it is. It will be health to your flesh and strength to your bones. So what does it imply when it says it will be? It, it means it's a guarantee. You know, that's it's a promise. And what do you get? Health to your flesh and strength to your bones. Psalm 91, 14 through 16. Because he has set his love upon me. And again, I'm just pointing it out. It's a choice. He has set his love upon me. Therefore, I will deliver him. I will set him on high because he has known my name. He shall call upon me and I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will deliver him and honor him. And here it is, verse 16. With long life, I will satisfy him and show him my salvation. So I just need to point out, in case you didn't know this, and I know that you do, but that's all good news. <laughs> it's not bad stuff. That's good news for length of days. And just to close out, Jeremiah 29, 11 says, For I know the thoughts, or, or the plans, I know the thoughts and plans I have towards you, says the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil, to give you a future and a hope. 3 John 1 2 says, Beloved, I pray that you may prosper in all things and be in health just as your soul prospers. So, is God sovereign? Absolutely. He knows the end from the beginning. He is the Alpha and the Omega. He is above all. He's supreme. He's first in rank. Absolutely. And what is God's desire for us in this life? It's that we'll have length of days, it's that we'll fight against the schemes of the devil. Does that mean that we won't come against circumstances and situations? You know, no. We'll come against sickness and disease and that sort of thing. We'll come against things in this life where people are calling evil good and good evil. We'll have the option with whether or not we'll stand for what the Word of God says. You know, there are people over overseas and we're in the U.S. where this is being recorded, but there's people in other countries that are being murdered for their faith. Jesus told us that in this life we'll face trials and persecutions, but be of good cheer. He's overcome the world. So yes, this is not a message where having a fear or a reverence for God and a love towards God means that everything is just going to be hunky-dory. Absolutely not. That's not what this message is. 
But what this message is saying is that God is not the one responsible for the stuff and the junk that we would label as bad. God is not the one responsible for it. Even when we're persecuted and people are coming against us and we stand up for our faith and what we believe, that ultimately is not God's will either, but it's going to happen. But be of good cheer, okay? This life is just a, a snap of the fingers. Blink your eyes right now. And however long it took, that is just, <laughs> that is how long it is in the span of eternity. We can keep our minds focused on eternity and, and how things will be one day in the presence of God and know that his will is ultimately to have heaven on earth, that we can walk in that peace and that love and that joy and all the fruits of the spirit. We can have all that right now, no matter what we face. Thanks for listening and join us again next time on the Abundance Podcast.